0: Welcome to the Catholic Economics Podcast. I'm your host, Levi Russell, and today is September 5th, 2020. So today is uh, the third episode of my "Our Economy This Week" show, and I want to warn you that there's not a ton of good news here. Uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna save the good news for the end. So hopefully, when you uh, when you turn the podcast off, hopefully you're feeling um, happier <laughs> than when you started. So the first thing, and I'm gonna put links to all of these. Uh, all of these uh, articles in the show notes and uh, just a reminder, if you, if you want to support the show uh, just sharing it is fantastic. I appreciate uh, everyone's interest and I appreciate you sharing it with other people. But uh, if, you're, if you if you want to contribute financially to the show, there's a Patreon and subscribe star links and also uh, anchor.fm will also uh, support um, uh, uh, donations to the show. So the first article I have is kind of following up on something I talked about last week with regard to the Federal Reserve changing its monetary policy strategy with regard to inflation. And so what they've done is they've moved to a, an average inflation targeting framework. Uh, and, and this is a, a change in some sense. I mean, there's, there's, there seems to be a lot of disagreement on whether or not this is really a big change or not. Uh, up until this point... For a very long time the Fed has had a a two percent inflation target and the idea there is that the the Federal Reserve's policies with respect to open market operations and stuff like that uh, was intended to uh, produce two percent increase in consumer prices every year and so in evaluating the fed's ability to hit that target. In other words, not, they don't want to be too low and they don't want to be too high for a million different reasons. Um, but they have not consistently been at or above 2% for quite a while. In fact, they've been running under that. And so, uh, Chairman Powell announced this change to this average, um, average target. So they're going to kind of look at, uh, and they're, they're looking at an average, they want to, they want to average inflation 2% over time. So the idea would be that looking back, they've been below two, so they're going to tolerate something above two, to, uh, kind of, uh, you know, bring about that average. And the issues uh, that this article addresses are, uh, some inaccuracies and biases in, the the different price indices that the federal reserve uses and and really anyone in the government uses to understand what uh what 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 prices are actually doing and so the concern by some is that and and specifically they quote uh paul Volcker is a of a, a previous uh fed chairman from i believe the 80s early 80s he was the guy who uh really pushed rates way up back in the 80s. So his concern is that they're going to start tolerating a little bit more inflation than they really should. And what will happen is we'll end up getting um, kind of a bunch of market bubbles and a bunch of risk-taking behavior and stuff like this uh, in markets that otherwise would not have happened. So that's another maybe a little more mild take than, than the one I gave you last week, uh, on this policy, but it's still critical, uh, still critical of their move. So then if we, if we look to, uh, this next piece I found in the New York times by Justin Wolfers. And, and if you, if that name rings a bell, Justin Wolfers was a, uh, very high ranking official in the Obama, uh, on the Obama economic team. I can't remember exactly what he, what he did, but he was, he was, um, Very, very important several years ago in in that whole policy world and still is. And he has this interesting piece in the New York Times related to this Fed thing. And he's talking about the fact that, you know, even though our measures of inflation aren't showing a lot of inflation over time, the the affliction and the associated lockdowns has really caused concern uh, for the, the, the problems that we have in trying to measure um, consumer prices. And so he gives several reasons here. The He says people are buying more of the goods whose prices are rising the fastest. Okay, And so the idea is that the CPI has this basket of goods. The, the Consumer Price Index has this basket of goods and it says, okay, people are going to buy these things and we're just going to track the price of those things over time. And so the problem is, is that because this is a fixed basket, right? And, and just for example, it's like uh, we could build a basket and say, well, I'm going to buy uh, you know, a pound of beef and I'm going to buy two loaves of bread every two weeks. Let's just say, I, I don't know. That's probably not the right amounts, but I don't do a lot of grocery shopping myself. So if that is, is is that's how I'm going to measure. So the, the total price of that basket is how I'm going to measure changes in prices over time, right? And if all of a sudden uh, someone starts buying more beef than I have in the basket, then that's going to actually uh, increase the uh, the error, right? Between my basket, right? I'm always just measuring one pound of beef and two loaves of bread. Well, what if people change from buying? You know, maybe they start buying two pounds of meat and one loaf of bread. Right. Well, if the meat is the higher priced item in there, then me sticking with that same basket over time is going to cause problems for me trying to measure this accurately. And so he goes through some examples. And again, I this this as long as you uh, give agree to give the New York Times your email, you can read this article. Um, he he talks about the pandemic changing uh, where and how people shop. So he talks about the fact that you know, some people, and I mean, he's, you know, he's talking about his own people with this whole Instacart thing. And I'm not, I've, I've never used Instacart. I don't know how, how much money you have to have to use Instacart, but uh, he talks about Instacart being, you know, again, this this additional price on top of, you know, he, he, he used to buy Cheerios at the store well now he's using Instacart so he can stay at home and okay, well, that's just an additional price premium for him. He also talks about the fact that people aren't shopping around as much and so people aren't looking for those deals as much as they might have or they're just uh sort of prizing convenience over uh, uh cheaper options okay and so in that sense again people might be buying these more premium type things because that's the thing they can get delivered or uh, that's the thing they can if, if they can do all their shopping this one store in this one trip then they don't have to make as many trips and so maybe certain items are more expensive uh when they do that trip. Uh he also talks about and this is a really interesting point here. He also talked about the quality of services going down. And so if you think about uh one of the things we have to do more correcting for um uh correcting for the changes in quality and prices, right? So if um a TV was uh $500 in 1995 and now it costs $150, okay, well the, the, the price has declined, but, but really what's also happened is the, the quality of that television has increased, right? The, the TV doesn't weigh a hundred pounds anymore. Um, has uh, got a better picture and all of this sort of thing. And so we, we try to, uh, adjust for the changes in quality over time and sort of that, uh, subtract that out of the uh, inflation indices and it's called a hedonic adjustment uh, but the issue here is that we're normally we expect the quality of goods and services to increase over time at least again in a very Benthamite sort of way and so I'm not um, you know'm certainly not trying to reduce all of our quality of life to stuff and how much how cool our stuff is right but the point is that you have to if if you're going to do this whole uh you know inflation consumer price index um method then you're going to have to try to adjust for quality well what he's saying is that all of a sudden over the last six months or so uh you know the quality of a lot of things has gone down right so you're doing things over uh some kind of you know zoom or, or skype or something and maybe that makes it not as good right we're talking about especially uh especially education, right? Listen, to my last episode uh, earlier this week, he uh, talked about, you know, restaurants being a little more, you know, a little less touchy feely, a less, a little less uh, table servicey and all that stuff. Uh, so let's see. So he goes on to talk about variety decreasing. And so there's all these shortages of all this stuff, right? Um, it, was, it was very hard to find bicycles, um, just anything containing a lot of steel, uh, weird things like, uh, you know, stuff that we ship from other countries, uh, all kinds of stuff. He gives a handful of examples here. Um, but these things are just unavailable. And so what does that mean? Well, does that mean the price went to infinity? Uh, you know, we, we can't really, uh, we can't really put that into a basket of goods, but it's like, you know, is, is the fact that you can't get it at all? How does, how do we include that in some kind of a price index? Uh, so then he argues, and at the end here, that you know the true inflation rate has risen because we've we've been overstating sometimes some of these some of these effects in a normal time frame would overstate inflation, but now they're actually understating it, so we're actually getting more inflation than we normally would. So to continue on the train of bad news, uh, I want to I want to send you this uh, or I want to link to this zero hedge article uh, talking about the decline decline in uh, upward mobility in the U.S. And there's some, some great charts in here uh, that kind of show uh, the ability for uh, people born during that era, that decade, to out-earn their parents. So, for instance, uh, the, someone in the 50th income percentile, right? so right in the middle in terms of income, in 1940, there was a 93% chance that they were going to out-earn their parents. And every decade after that, it declines. And by the time we get to 1980, the decade of 1980s, uh, so people like me, I was born in 1986. Uh, our, our chance, if, if we start out in the 50th percentile on income, then uh, so the median family, our chance of out earning our parents is less than 50 percent. It's 45 percent, uh, and even and then this this holds across the spectrum. So, if you're in the, the bottom percentile on income. Your, your chance of out-earning your parents has declined. Not as much, not as rapidly. Um, and even and if you're in the top percentile, if you're in the top end of the income spectrum, and you start out up there, your chances of out-earning your parents have dropped dramatically. And he talks about whoever this author is. Again, you know, this is, uh, <laughs> this is Zero Hedge. So Tyler Durden is the author, right? Uh, just anonymous person. Talks about stagnating wage growth as a culprit and and talking about the um the 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 changes in the size of these different income classes so uh you, you can there's two different ways you can do this right you can say uh you can you can split the population up into three groups like he does in one of these charts with income distribution and uh, and then show how many people are uh, show show how much income those groups have, right? So again, we've got fixed numbers of people in each group. How much has their income changed, right? And so uh, what he shows there is that uh, people this this the upper third of the U.S. Um, their income class, uh, excuse me, their, their 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 share of the income has increased. Whereas the share of income for the middle third of the U S has decreased and the lower third has stayed about the same. So if you put that a different way and you say, okay, well, let's, let's fix our income groups, right. And probably adjust for inflation and see, uh, how many people are in these different income groups. And he's got five groups here. Uh, and what he shows is that it's, it's the case. It's true that the middle class has shrunk. Uh, that the lower middle class has shrunk. So people with the lower middle class is people with between thirty-two and a half and fifty-four and a half thousand dollars in annual income. Middle class is fifty-four to one hundred eight, and the upper middle class is one hundred eight to three eighty. Um, so the the upper middle class has grown dramatically over time here, and the. Uh, you know the middle class has shrunk, and what's interesting though is that it's not growing as fast now as it has in the past. So the, the chart starts in 1967 and, and and ends up in 2016. But I think w- one thing to think about here is that this uh, certainly you can you can paint two pictures here, right? You can say well the, the middle class is declining, and, or you can say or on the flip side you can say well the upper middle class is growing, right? But I think the one of the ways to interpret this is that uh, when your system is built on the idea that you can just keep growing these high, higher income groups like the upper middle class, and uh, when that when that growth starts to slow down and you start to see uh, kind of cracks in the way things are working, in other words, people are uh, are not going to just keep uh, the data shows here that we're not going to just being able be able to keep out earning our parents like folks in the past have. There's something going on that's making that harder to do now, and so I think that that is a a narrative you can build that makes a lot of sense given the data that we have in here. Uh, so that's an interesting piece to look at. Uh, let's see. The next one talks about the kind of the inability of the stimulus to Really um, uh, fix the problems that we have, and so I think it's an interesting uh, discussion here, and 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 it's it's another zero hedge piece, so it's it's a little bit long and, and goes off on some tangents, but th- it it tries to address this idea that the stock market is some kind of an indicator of what's going on and, and how bad or good things are, and I, I think there's there's certainly value in in discussing that, and and this this particular piece talks about the fact that, you know, the stock market is not an indicator of the health of the economy, right? The real economy is suffering massively. And, uh, especially when we're talking about, uh, employment and, and, small businesses. And I, I talked about this last week, I think that, that what we're really seeing is, uh, a, a shift from, of wealth from main street to wall street. And this is just another kind of a, another piece that, it kind of repackages that same idea and gives you a little more detail. So definitely a good one to check out. And then let's see here, uh, the, a piece from The Hill, uh, a warning to Democrats, small business owners are getting angry, very angry. So sort of heaped on top of the fact that the lockdown has uh, crushed a lot of these small businesses. Now we have, uh, I don't know, the Democratic Party proxies uh, running around uh, looting and burning uh, all these small business storefronts in major cities around the country and and even in smaller cities now like Kenosha we saw something in uh, Rochester New York last night um, just absolutely crazy and people are just begging you know just begging people to not burn their 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 uh, their businesses to the ground uh, because it's all they have and and uh, so I think this is interesting. This hill piece, which you know, the hill tends to be, I don't know, kind of try to try to hit the middle, I guess, on on bias. But it's it's uh, <laughs> the problem here is I think that most people understand that the riots were um, were encouraged for the last several months by the Democrats, and and so the the reality is that. Uh, they're they're going to catch the blame, uh, at least for now. I mean, who knows? Uh, but at least for now, they're going to catch the blame for all of this stuff um, and, and from a political angle. And so, anyway, an interesting piece to read, and you know that brings me to uh, wanting to talk about you know small business is an important issue and specifically supporting Catholic businesses. And so I want to make you aware of a great business run by a young Catholic couple. Uh, Colette's Carvings makes beautiful wooden plaques for your home. I bought one of the first ones they made from my son's room. He's named after St. Francis Xavier, and Colette's Carvings did a masterful job making a custom wall hanging to honor his namesake. Their themes range from saints to custom family nursery signs to holiday decor. Devotionals and decor from our home to yours. Check out Colette's Carvings on Etsy at the link in the show notes and along with that i want to uh, i want to mention the first issue of social justice quarterly which is the leonine institute's magazine uh colette's carvings has an ad in there as well uh very generous of them to support uh the institute and and to support my podcast like this uh so do check out go to leoinstitute.org slash social justice quarterly and i'll leave a link in the show notes but uh Go ahead and check that out it's it's uh about 23 pages i think of uh some really good uh articles by some of the research associates at the institute i have a piece in there uh and and the the theme for this issue is subsidiarity so yeah, if you're interested in learning more about subsidiarity and uh, we've got articles on the history of it we've got articles on uh, implementing it and we've got articles on uh, you know, what it means for uh, other policy endeavors and stuff like that. So please do check that out. Um, so let's see. Next up, we've got JP Morgan strategist says investors should get ready for Trump win. So I, I suppose this is the uh, starting on the good news part. Uh, if you're in favor of the Trump win. Uh, so this, this JP Morgan guy is basically saying this is a piece from the New York Post. Uh, this JP Morgan guy is basically saying that the, uh, the, the, the polls are, uh, uh off because again, he's, he thinks this, this whole idea of, um, uh, a bias in the polls because people are unwilling to say that they're going to vote for Trump. Right. And so this is reminiscent of 2016. Uh, but this is sort of the, uh, the the wins he's seeing, and and the reason, uh, you know, according to the New York Post, that we're supposed to listen to this guy is that, you know, he's he's been very good at picking um, the 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 market moves, uh, uh, sort of associated with we think in um, uh, associated with the the political movements in the U.S. Um, and so anyway, short piece on that. And so this is interesting. Of course, there's tons of people predicting that, you know, Trump is uh, Trump's going to lose. And uh, we have the Washington Post basically threatening us that if if, uh, if, unless unless Joe Joe Biden wins in a landslide, uh, we're going to, you know, the the um, Antifa and BLM and all these groups are going to continue to uh, burn cities and loot and all of this. Uh, So let's see another piece in The Motley Fool talked about Fiverr. Uh, and their, their stock, stock jumped 29% last month. So if you've never heard of Fiverr, it's Fiverr and with two R's. Um, and it's, it's a freelancer marketplace kind of thing. It's this website where you can go on and you can offer your services, you know, some, some small increment of a service for a low price. And it allows people to get maybe transcription services or uh, graphic design services or something like that for really cheap and, and I think what's their stock is jumping because they've got so many people uh, on this website trying to kind of eke out some sort of living or trying to supplement lost income. Uh, and so they're, you know, it's this sort of gig thing, it's this gig economy. And, and they're trying to, uh, they're, they're apparently seeing some real success as far as um, their, their stock and, 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 the ability to, uh, get people to use their platform. So I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm kind of negative on this. I don't, I don't think this is a good thing necessarily, but, uh, but I, but I at least think, you know, for the short run, at least it's, there's, it's good that there is something for people to go to, um, while we have deadlock on the second round of stimulus and, uh, while the, the, uh, the damage that's done to the real economy, uh, sort of Uh, makes itself known in uh, uh, furloughs and and lost wages and stuff like that. Uh, At least there's something there to kind of bridge the gap for some people. Uh, So last I want to hit the stock market news. And the big thing this week was that the NASDAQ just absolutely got beaten up. And um, worst week since March, says Yahoo Finance, uh, as tech shares slide. And so, you know, I'm, I'm certainly happy to see tech shares uh, on the decline, especially if we're talking about the, uh, the, the largest, uh, you know, what, what we call the fangs, right? It's uh, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, uh, and uh, Google, uh, are these stocks? You know, how how are they doing? Right. So we we're talking about this uh, this big sell off, and uh, in in these tech stocks. But the funny thing is, of course, <laughs> that uh, they some of them did lose. Uh, but I have another piece here from Morningstar that basically shows that these these companies are still massively overvalued relative to their fair value estimate, and so we're still seeing uh, a bubble. Uh, in a lot of these tech stocks, according to these fair value estimates, and, and of course, you know, it could be the case that if uh, you know if everybody's just going to stay in their houses for the rest of their lives and um, you know watch Netflix and uh, and all of that, then uh, perhaps these these seeming bubble uh, valuations that that we're actually observing in the markets are more realistic than the so called fair value estimates. But I think what what's hopefully uh, the case here is that. Uh, we're we're starting to see sort of some cracks in the armor of uh, of the Fang stocks, and and of course the the uh, uh, the political influence that these companies wield is is just unconscionable. And so, finally, the uh, <laughs> the real the real good news uh, for all of this episode is that uh, Attorney General William P. Barr has uh, set a deadline to file antitrust charges against Google. And the of course this is a New York Times piece and so uh, just constant signaling against the the attorney general himself um, and and constant repetition of the idea that a bunch of the lawyers on this team are uh, saying, Oh, we need more time. We need more time. But then when they finally get around to actually saying what Barr says about it, he's like, look, they're, they're slow. They've been screwing around. They haven't, they, 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 the stuff needs to get done. So here's your deadline. And then, of course, you know, New York Times, all oh, this is arbitrary. <laughs> but, uh, of course, all deadlines are, right? I mean, that's just the way, that's the nature of things. Uh, we, you know, we set deadlines because uh, that's when we, we, our wisdom dictates that we need to get things done. And I think, personally, I, I think Barr is, is a very wise man. And, of course, as we learned 20 years ago with Microsoft, uh, you know, sort of the process is the punishment. So the, the legal process uh, you know, in, in terms of filing these charges and uh, dragging Google through the courts and stuff like this, uh, that is the punishment. We're, we're not going to see. Uh, I, I am predicting we're not going to see some kind of massive breakup. Although that would be great, uh, but there will be damage done to Google's um, uh, monopoly. Uh, I'm I'm confident in this process. If it goes well, if Barr can really force the hand of these guys. And, look, you know, they keep talking about it here in, in New York Times, all these career lawyers. And it's like, yeah, the career lawyers that have uh, overseen the the utter decline of antitrust enforcement over the last several decades. So, you know, excuse me if I'm not interested in their career, right? I'm interested in somebody like Barr who has the wisdom and the, the fortitude to actually go after these guys. Uh, so... We'll see what happens there, and I think that's probably enough to wrap up for this week. Uh, And uh, I will see you again next week with my regular episode in the middle of the week and another Our Economy this week uh, on next weekend. Thanks for watching, and please do share. appreciate all your interest in uh, economics from a Catholic perspective.